my audience. Welcome to another edition, another episode of the JL Podcast. I have yet another special guest with me, Michael Green. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jay. What's that? What's that grin for, man? It's because I used your government. I didn't shorten it. Right, man. It's so formal. <laughs> so, in the so before, you said what? So, so formal for the folks in the diaspora. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. So, everybody, I'm really excited for this episode. Couple disclaimers before we get started. Mike and I had a previous conversation, and he told me he basically trying to get me kicked off all platforms. So I don't know how reckless this is going to be. Uh, I, I I can't speak to any of that, which is going to kind of wing it, see how it goes. That's one. And then two, the host double booked himself, running late, <laughs> not professional, isn't ready for this, this episode like he should have been. So it's going to be real interesting. Uh, but back to my guest, Mike, Mike, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time out and working with my fake busy schedule to to get here. <laughs> but um, let's go ahead and get started. So you and I spent a lot of time talking about, you know, you grow up growing up in Philly. So give us a little bit of background on you and, and your upbringing and what Philly means to you. All right. Um, hi, folks. My name is Mike Green. I'm a chef, Mike, to the, some folks. I'm from West Philadelphia, specifically the Overbrook area. Um, Wow, just the, um, I guess, sort of the average millennial story, or maybe not average. Um, grew up, mom, dad, started out at grandma's house. Mom and dad figured it out. We moved on up, which meant five minutes away from grandma's house. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, made it out to track. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Attended the illustrious Cheney University, the first HBCU. I don't care what any Lincoln graduates have to say. <laughs> um, and I've been pursuing my passions in my adult life and trying to figure this thing out on uh, semi-autopilot with no helmet. <laughs> <laughs> so you went to Cheney right now. Before we spoke, I never heard of Cheney University, which just I could kick myself. Right, but it is HBCU. So walk me through what led you up to going to Cheney and then also what your experience was when you were there. Well, to start my uh, story at Cheney, it actually starts um, at my high school graduation. I had, uh, scholastically, I had uh, got accepted to some um, notable institutions, Villanova, uh, Temple, you know, a lot of the prestigious universities in the Philadelphia area. But I was looking at the uh, bill <laughs> for <a> semester. <laughs> and at that time, I'm going to date myself. In 2008, it was uh, 60 grand a semester in Villanova. And I looked at two middle class parents and they're like, <laughs> we love you, but love won't make a way. <laughs> so I found... <laughs> I found myself at the illustrious Community College of Philadelphia. I um, It's affectionately known around the city as 13th grade. But myself, like unlike a lot of people, I uh, went there for two years and only two years, graduated from my associates 
and they had a bridge program to the uh, state schools. Um, I was a hospitality slash business major, and the only state school that uh, held my major was Cheney University. And to be honest, like I didn't, I didn't know what Cheney was. It's just as an HBCU. I grew up as a Cosby kid watching Different World and everything. Right. <laughs> that was fun. You know, they have my major. It's not too far from home, just in case anything happens. You know, um, I can get back back to home base. So I graduated from community and moved to uh, Ch- Cheney University. Okay, so walk me through your experience there, right? Like, what was what were some of the the highs? What were some of the things that you may have assumed going in that ended up being different. Like walk, walk me through that experience. <laughs> well, you know, it, Cheney has a lot of uh, rumors where, oh, it's a party school, it's a party school. You know, nobody ever goes there, learn anything. That wasn't my experience. Apparently I wasn't old enough to enjoy the, the glory party days, but once I got <laughs> there, it was, um, Semi-strict. It was a, a dry campus, even though everybody was hydrated. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, it was just a culture shock. Like, uh, I was prepared to go to institution like Villanova and like Cheney, like other HBCUs were underfunded. So you noticed that you didn't have state-of-the-art dormitories. You didn't have um, five, ten microbiology labs. Our sporting teams, like we didn't have the the Wells Fargo Center, the Superdome. We didn't have access to that. We was just yeah. buried in our bones. But not to put down my HBCU because I love my HBCU. Um, that was a culture shock. But what I learned there was appreciation for my blackness. Like for the first time in my life, I was surrounded by. I was the majority. The faculty looked like me. The um, teachers looked like me. Hall advisors looked like me. Everybody. Being Black in that bubble that is HBCU is uplifting and a great thing. Um, your culture is celebrated. You, uh, When you go to a history class, it doesn't start in the 1600s in Virginia. Right. It starts with in the beginning it was black and everything else followed and all things that are good <laughs> came from us and here's our imprint on on the universe um and that experience was was priceless because at least for a black man in this country you don't have that one pause from real life responsibilities like bills, having a job. You don't have a pause from institutional pressures and everything. And you don't have a bubble to be yourself and to be appreciated and to grow and express yourself. Like nobody's telling you your locks are unprofessional. Your, you know, your vernacular isn't spectacular. You just, you know. Yeah. All, all the things you, you take for granted in terms of not having to navigate through on a daily basis, just living your life, you start to really see the impact of not having to do that consistently every single day 
over time, it's like, oh, wow, I don't understand. I didn't understand the weight that I was carrying outside of just the typical weight of living your life, doing the things you need to do, like you said, paying bills, looking to secure some sort of financial income, you know, friends, relationships, et cetera, that additional layer or layers you can argue that come with that. It sounds like when you're at an HBCU, it's it's alleviated in some capacity. Yes, you walk on that campus and excel, excel. And I don't think a lot of people in general, but specifically black people in general, will ever know the joy of Frankie Beverly coming on and you and 10,000 other people doing the electric slide. <laughs> I don't think that a lot of black people around the com- country will ever know what it's like to be runway ready and dressed to impress every day of class. Because unlike um, most PWIs, you know, people in those institutions will go to class in a hoodie and and uh, pajama pants. You'll see fuzzy slippers and you'll see zombie land till about, you know, <laughs> two, three o'clock. No. Right. Uh, the men are generally dressed and the women are runway ready every day. And then it's corporate Wednesdays. Everybody tucks the shirt in. And <laughs> along with, along with corporate, and ironically, along with corporate Wednesday, it's fried chicken Wednesday, soulful Wednesday. <laughs> And then it's the social life. Yeah, so so, wa- walk me through what that was like for you being there. Oh, man. Uh, this is embarrassing. All right, my first... <laughs> all right, boom. It's fall 10. <laughs> my first uh, party on Cheney's campus. Like, I had never heard of the Divine Nine or the Greek letter organizations. So... And everybody else got the pamphlet, got the memo, got the video. I didn't know. So I'm at a party. My song is on. I'm like, oh. And then a line of 10 men come. <laughs> blowing whistles. And parting the party like a red, like the Red Sea. <laughs> I'm like, yo, who are these rowdy dudes? Kicking, swinging, spinning. On beat. <laughs> and in unison it was a sight to behold but I was in I was the guy that was in the way and broke up the line and then I got a crash course <laughs> in why that is not acceptable um, and um, I ended up having a um, um, a very aggressive conversation with one of the gentlemen outside of the uh, Outside of the function, <laughs> and to not incriminate myself, that conversation didn't go the way the gentleman thought it was going to go. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> okay, okay, <laughs> okay, okay. So you got a crash course, uh, but overall, how would you say that entire scene? Right, that entire experience shaped you when you left and started doing other things? Like, um, it gave me a, um, it gave me a foundation. It reaffirmed my uh, foundation as a man 
because you know from 18 to 22 you're still becoming a man and as a as a black man because now you have uh, uh, self-knowledge you have a self-appreciation and because things were so rough on the campus because we didn't have the resources of neighboring um, schools we honestly had to try harder we were more prepared to attack life and persevere while others are used to having docuprint. Our docuprint was how fast can these Air Jordans get me across the quad <laughs> to the provost's office before um, at the sign off on my next semester before I'm, you know, on academic suspension. Right. Right. It's it's a lot more rough and rugged. <laughs> yes. Or while on other campuses, you know, Sprite has donated or provided scholarships, like you had to be resourceful if you wanted to stay in school. The alumni helps, but um, you just have to take ownership and be the captain of your own ship in the HBCU. But um, that experience and people you go to school with and then getting in contact with the alumni is priceless. If you wear your HBCU gear, that's why I recommend everybody to travel in their HBCU gear um, because it's nothing like being in the airport and somebody saying, see you! Like, you might not even know them. They could be 30 years your senior, but just that, still that excitement. Um, and I have to get on Cheney because they're, it's hard to get their... Um, like the alumni gear, uh, somehow, somehow Chris Paul, Chris Paul, <laughs> showed up to the, uh, the the Suns game in a beautiful Cheney Wolves pullover. Right, Charlie and the God had a, a Cheney sweatsuit, <laughs> and I graduated from this institution, and I can't get a keychain. <laughs> Listen, man, you are, you already know what that's about. That's about power and access. <laughs> hey, man, you got to get it. <laughs> So, okay, so you, you left Cheney, right, with this more affirmed foundation um, and, and belief in self, specifically when it came to your Blackness. Um, what did you do next after that? And, and how do you think your experience at Cheney influenced that? Um, what did I do next? Well, I walked across the stage. <laughs> was handed a, um, what I thought was a degree, but uh, at least in the immediate, immediate time after receiving it, it was more like a receipt. Because, you you know, you, you, you go on these job interviews and they're like, oh man, you're qualified, you're a nice guy, I really like that tie, but qualified for this position, you have the education, but you're not 32. You need experience. Right. I was like, wait a minute, but she said I needed the paper to get at this desk, but now you're telling me I need to be 32? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm 22. I can't control that. Well, you know, we'll keep you on file. And um, back to how Cheney helped just the perseverance because uh, just learning and talking to older people, you know, if you can't find a good job, staple two bad ones together <laughs> until you get that, that one good one. Right. So Immediately after graduating from Cheney, it was uh, just perseverance, like working at UPS and Shake Shack and the airport, 
And then I, uh, my first real job, meaning you put on your hard shoes and your, and your tie, was at uh, Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Okay. As a, a sales rep. Okay. Okay. So you and I spend a tremendous amount of time talking about all things Negro, right? <laughs> a tremendous amount of time. So Black empowerment, you know, whether that's economically, socially, you know, financially, politically, et cetera. So talk to me about what Black empowerment looks like from your point of view and how do we get there? Hmm. Black empowerment to me means uh, <laughs> Michael J. Fox pulling up in the DeLorean <laughs> and uh, us uh, going back to 1965. Okay. <laughs> why, why is that important? Um, the marriage rate in our community was 80%. Um, we were together as a community. We owned um, at least quadruple the amount of land we currently own. Um, we were business owners. And in a, in a capitalist society, economics is king. The, um, the only rule is, you know, he who has the gold makes the rules. Right. So in order to talk anything about empowerment, you have to solidify your economic base. And I feel like as a community, we forfeited our economic base through integration. You know, because we stopped going to Uncle Joe's laundromat or, or uh, Willie D's general store because now, now uh, the government said we can scoot on over to Walmart. Right. We go to JC Penney's. And we took the economic base out of our neighborhood and stopped recycling our dollars, which is why today our dollar only recycles in our community for six hours. From direct deposit to six hours later, your money is out of your community. And you can't, that's not sustainable. Right. I think one of the many things, I'm sure you learned this at your HBCU or even before, it's certainly one of the things that I learned in some of my Africana studies classes was this notion that the dollar recycled in our neighborhoods and it was a focal point and a focus for it to stay there, right? Because yeah. arguably we didn't have any other choice. There was no other option. It couldn't go anywhere. And so opportunities in trade industries, you know, whether it be a blacksmith, right, electrician, you know, opportunities to own the general store, um, opportunities to be a part of things within the neighborhood that networked you. That's just what we did. And so once you started to take those trades out of schools, once you started to enforce <clears throat> individuals, marginalized folks like Black people to feel the need to have to go to college, right. get a degree in order to pursue you know, further endeavors, it crippled a lot of our spending power and our opportunity to continue to grow and build that network. Absolutely. Because a uh, perfect example, um, my parents helped pay for me to go to college, but and they're some of the most successful people I know. Neither one of them have a degree. 
my dad's a career construction worker and my mom has a, a corporate position at um AT&T but they that's the grit and work and grind and a lot of people forget that you know infrastructure and the trades you know making money with your hands that's you can duplicate that that's how you make money that's how you're self-determined you can start a business if you know how to work with your hands right but if you were leaning on your degree a degree teaches you how to be an employee not a not a boss and that's just how we've been programmed because we stopped looking at ourselves as good enough and looked at looking outward saying like we need what they have but we haven't been where they've been we're in, we're in a different position yeah it's a it's a interesting dynamic right around this notion of wanting to feel included and wanting to feel a part of when the harsh reality of it is that's ne- that was never really on the table, right? We were never supposed to be viewed in the same light as our white and even other people of colors, you know, counterparts. We were never supposed to be viewed in that light. It was this tease of quote unquote uh, equality and access that was never actually going to be granted, right? In the way in the in the way that it was presented and in the way that we thought, certainly. Um, I'll give I'll give historical context because um, I want our people that might not be history buffs to know that like we've done it and we didn't. It's not all on us. Like we need to help ourselves get out of the position we're in, but it's not all on us. Like the classic example of um, Black Wall Street. Um, People don't understand that there was three square miles of successful Black businesses that were flourishing while the rest of the state was living in abject poverty. Our white counterparts outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma, they were living in shacks and shanty towns while we had our own airport. We had our own bus system. We had um, booming trade and through government-sponsored terrorism, Tulsa, Oklahoma was bombed. I say government-sponsored terrorism because actually that incident was the first time a bomb was dropped on American soil because the sheriff provided dynamite um, to the outside of white community and they dropped it from a helicopter right on on tulsa oklahoma and then people like oh that only happened that was so we only had one no wilmington north carolina the movie rosewood in florida what they what they don't tell you is there was a thriving economic center yes where we relied on ourselves like you said because we had to and another thing is we were we had families because families um, run the world, not countries. Um, the royal family, you know, they're not in government, but they control everything. The queen is the largest real estate holder on the planet. <laughs> and still has half of the Caribbean paying her rent. Yeah. Uh, yep. She's like, <laughs> like, we have our independence. Yes, but you have a landlord. And that's why you know, chunks of your GDP still goes to the crown. That's rent. Yeah. It, so 
to reference back to Rosewood, Rosewood is a, a movie I encourage everybody to see. I've I've gotten to this point where I try not to encourage uh, black folks, especially to continue to watch these black trauma films, just because right. there's a tremendous amount of it. The, the The market is completely oversaturated with these films that continually ask us to relive these traumatic endeavors and history. And I just I'm not sold on it being the healthiest thing, but for the purposes of this podcast and what we're talking about right now, (laughs) not to go too far off tangent, but Rosewood is a, is a movie I highly encourage folks to not only see, um, I believe Vin Rames is one of the Vin Rames, Don Cheadle, Don Cheadle. Um, and just to give a little bit of context about what the movie is about is there's this thriving town in Florida, right? Um, Yeah. I believe Rosewood was in Florida, somewhere in the South. Yeah. And, you know, it's a thriving town. Uh, um, you know, blacks have an opportunity to to grow, you know, live, make a living, um, own property, you know, raise their families, etc. And the basic gist of it is the white woman who is cheating on her husband with Don Cheadle, right? I don't think so. I don't think it was. I think it was just with another white person. Oh, okay. Right? It's, she's, it's, it's just, she's having affairs with all kinds of dudes while her husband goes off and works. Right. right. I, I believe one of the men that she's having an affair with either strikes her or they get into an argument of some sort. She's embarrassed. Somebody witnesses this taking place and she claims that a black man raped her, I think. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> So that's a pop, that's a popular rumor that has led to a lot of lot of attack. That's how um, Tulsa, Oklahoma happened. Yeah. So essentially, after this happens, the husband comes home. He catches wind of this. You know, her her making these these false baseless claims, and it's it's game on. It's nothing but destruction and terror and violence. They essentially end up burning half the town to the ground. They completely destroy a lot of the infrastructure they put in place. Um, At one point, I believe they try to hang Vin Rames. And I guess because he's built like a stallion, he, the, it, the, he, it doesn't happen. Yeah. The neck, the neck, the noose doesn't uh, take hold because it can't collapse his windpipe. Right. So he ends up escaping and uh, not to give the movie away, but, I'm gonna give it away. That's <laughs> that's essentially the husband finds out that what she what she claimed was a lie. Yeah. And but in the time it takes for him to figure that out, there is a it's 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 Armageddon. It's a it's a complete it's complete anarchy and chaos. So instances like that, the ones that are recorded, right? And there's a movie made out of it, like a Rosewood. Mm-hmm. I think the, sometimes in people's minds diminishes the fact that there were probably a lot more Rosewoods going on in different cities throughout the country that just never made it mainstream and were never recorded. Absolutely, I'll give you another example. A lot of people don't don't know that a a black woman, a black woman, uh, settled uh, Los Angeles. See, I, I didn't people, know that. A lot of people don't know that uh, uh, a black man se- um, settled Chicago. Um, 
And a lot of things is, is it's either similar attacks on our economic centers or our cities, or uh, the government got more covert and unified, and they stopped allowing people to ride through with torches and, and hoods on and started eminent domain. Wherever there's a black economic center, they build a highway. If you research, especially for um, my listeners, uh, look at 95 and look, um, research what stood under 95 earlier in the 1900s. Almost 90% of the time you'll find like, oh, there's a... um, there's a black village here. Or, oh, I didn't know they had all this. Or Central Park in New York. Yes. Seneca Village was what it was called. It was a thriving black economic community and center. And then they didn't like it because the wealth was consolidated in one area. One area. It's like, oh, we're going to build a park here. Yeah. And when they, when they couldn't get possession of the land, oh, um, the black guys are getting drunk and attacking uh, white folks at night. Right. <clears throat> that sound familiar? Like a movie that uh, when they see us? Right. Yeah, that the same seems like the same rumors have been floating around about <laughs> for well over a hundred years. But it, you know. it, this these notions, right? History is cyclical, right? We talk about there's so much talk now about things like gentrification. Like, oh, it's just, oh, man, I can't believe. Look at these cities now, and they're kicking all the Black folks out, and white, and, and all these other folks are moving in. That's been happening concurrently throughout history for a long time. It's nothing new. But I'll push back. Uh, I'll push back. My advice to everybody in our generation is to not look at gentrification as your enemy, just learn how to take advantage of it. Be, see what the 10 year plan for your neighborhood is. See what's coming. Like if you see a Sprouts, a Whole Foods, a Trader Joe's that's going to be built in three years near your house, start buying some property. Or a Cheesecake Factory, they seem to pop up everywhere and that's my spot. <laughs> Not the Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's my spot. But but to to your larger point, yes, absolutely. With with the access to information right. that we have now that we we just never had before in this capacity, we are certainly able to put ourselves in a position to at the very least get access to that information and and gather resources, whether it be our own or with people that are like minded, to be able to gain some of this footprint that we know is going to be coming down the pike in these areas, right? Right. And I'll share some wisdom that I, um, this is another one of my jobs uh, at post-college. When I was a construction worker, an old-timer who I was doing the work for myself and him, but he transferred a lot of wisdom. Um, he said, uh, he, was, he was mad country. He was like, don't spend so much time hating the white man that you forget to learn from. And and that stuck with me. Or I'll quote Michael Jordan. And I took that personally. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, and I'll hearken that point back to a book um, called uh, How the Jews Created 
Hollywood. Um, and you said that's a I, book. It's a book. How the, how the Jews created Hollywood, and um, it's not a it's not anti-Semitic or anything. It's literally a a chronicle of how you know they were outcasts and they had to depend on each other, and you know they faced discrimination as a group, and how they focused on certain industries, and dominated. And I think that that's the most relevant example of what our community should do. Um, you know, we should, um, I, I know we are, we beat, we're beating this dead horse. We should recycle our dollars. <laughs> we should, you know, invest on ourselves. We should mirror what other communities are doing. Have you ever seen a, a, a help wanted sign at the Chinese food store? I mean, I, I personally have not. Have you ever seen one at the laundromat, at the nail salon? At 7-Eleven, you can apply online. They're not going to call you. Right. But I don't have to say it. Who's all working there? Yeah. Yeah. Like, we're, we're the only ones that are trying to be inclusive, and we don't want to bring up race, but we're forgetting that we're in a race, and we're not looking out for ours, and we're losing. Well, and, and let me, and I don't want to go too far off track with this, but I think this is a very important moment to bring this up so there's this this inclusion that black people get with people of color and it's very dangerous and i think it's also very <clears throat> problematic because far too often we get lumped into this group that ultimately one a lot a lot of uh folks in that group don't want us there and number two we're not seen as actually being a part of that group even though we're lumped in and let me just say this real quick too. So, and we're going to go through some of the incidents that have happened recently throughout society because I think they're important to highlight. There has been a campaign around stop Asian hate, right? Since, <laughs> since the uh, coronavirus has taken hold in the States and President 45 titled it the China virus, there has been this uptick. Or the Kung flu. Or the Kung flu. There has been this uptake in hate crimes and hate discrimination towards Asian folks. And so there was a, this tremendous outpouring of support, allyship, empathy, you know, all the things you would like to see when fighting against white supremacy. Pause. The caution that, that I have seen from other Black people, I think there is a high level of merit to it. There are Black folks that have said, and I agree with this sentiment, I am not as quick to jump towards this allyship because all these incidents that have taken place and transpired, i.e. a George Floyd, a Breonna Taylor, I have seen no support and allyship from these very same people of color that are now asking us to come to their aid. And, and I'll leave it with this and then you can jump in. Mm. As Black folks, we are always the first to yeah. have this outpouring of empathy for everybody else, right? Why? Because we understand what it's like to constantly be degraded, subjugated, oppressed, etc. So we get it, particularly in this country, in a way that nobody else does, which is why we're constantly always willing to help. 
and understand, that is not always reciprocated and that needs to be said. It's almost never reciprocated because to piggyback off your points, and I totally agree, um, black folks are traditionally used as a, as a Trojan horse for everybody else. Um, example, civil rights bills that are specifically for African-Americans. You know, um, instead of securing our rights and not, you know, putting the cape on for other communities, by the time that bill gets signed and put in the print, you read the details, what's supposed to be for African-Americans ends up for uh, Hispanics, illegal immigrants, Asians, LGBTQA+. Um, hopefully I got that right. Um, and everybody else. And then it goes back to trickle-down economics. Like, oh, um, oh, uh, yes, we're, we're, we can't be divisive like that. We got to help people of color. But like, I'm sorry. It was only a Black person under the knee of a police officer. It was only a black, it was only black people hanging from trees in the South. It was only black people that was the economic foundation of this country. So excuse me if I take my spot in, in the front of the line at, in the uh, oppression Olympics and get what's owed to me and mine first and then everybody else, H-Y-O-N. <laughs> so and let me be very clear about this too. I understand, as you do too, as many Black folks do, the enemy is white supremacy, right? White, this, this notion of superiority in all facets that is projected and exercised in society, I completely understand. The focus and the focal point is allyship and empathy needs to be a two-way street. And far too yeah. often, it is a one-way street. Just like I have examples in my own personal life where I've seen, um, where I've had issues, racist issues with other white folks, I've also had those racist issues with other Asian folks and other Hispanic folks. Matter of fact, the incident that happened in December with the uh, US Army, the Black and Latino US Army Lieutenant, his name was uh, Karan, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Nazario. Yeah. He was pepper sprayed by Officer Joe Gutierrez. It's a lot of that. Mr. Gutierrez happens to be what? Hispanic or la Latino. I'm not entirely or, sure. Or uh, George Zimmerman. Right. Right. It's, it's the same principle. And so this, this ultimate allyship that people project when it comes to people of color, I think is very dangerous because... A lot of a lot of instances that call for allyship in our favor just they're they're not seen. It yeah. is it, it's silent. Um, and you hit the nail on the head. It's um, it's it's just terrible. Because another example is um, from the Asian community to piggyback on the um, current stop um, stop hate crimes on 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 Asian people, uh, Peter, the officer Peter Liang in New York murdered a, um, murdered a black person. The Asian community in that borough of New York got together and raised over a million dollars to get Peter Liang out of jail and pay for his legal costs. 
And then they put pressure on the DA and the judge to excuse him for a heinous crime. Right. Now, you know, I'm not the knower of all things black, but I don't know of too many blacks getting together in numbers um, funding race soldiers that do things to Asian people. Right. And and I, I, I want to say this too, because I think it's also important. Not that everything else we have said is not important. Um, when when we say things like we support stop Asian, we don't want any race of any of any kind to be discriminated, subjugated, oppressed in any way, shape, or form. But right. we're so we're so conditioned in the society that when black folks stand up at attention and say we want this for ourselves, everybody else is like, whoa, 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 that's right. racist. Whoa, 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 look at what you you know. And it's funny because everybody else gets to do it completely unburdened and uninhibited but all of a sudden when we say it it's like oh my god I, there's a there's a comedian named godfrey and i yeah, I, I don't necessarily love his i don't necessarily love his comedy but i love his content right mm-hmm. he has this interview on vlad tv where he talks about this gap between black folks and other races and how other races leech off of our culture and, and everybody does that we understand that we don't need to go down that rabbit hole but he said, even saying something like, I love black women becomes, you know, he said, I love black women. They're the dopest to me. All of a sudden people come out like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What about other groups of women? And and, and why are you being racist and non-inclusive? And it's like, why we are so conditioned to not allow black folks to be proud of, of us and our own. That right. it's almost like people accept that. Like, oh man, maybe you're right. And that's just, uh, to me, that's unacceptable. And that's something that I, will refute in any circumstance that I come across because no other race, if if a white person comes out and says, I love white women, no one's even batting the eye and asking two questions about it. Same with, with Asian or any other group. You notice under the comments on the Stop Asian Hate Crime uh, post, you don't, you don't see none of that all lives, uh, no blue lives, nothing. It's it's what a common decent person would say. Hey, I don't think anybody should be getting kicked in the head. You know, nobody deserves for um, their quality of life to be changed violently. You know, by external force. Nobody deserves that because that's how decent people think. Right. But like you're saying, it's like when when black people want something. When we find because we're getting to that point where. We're just finally realizing that, hey, when we're banging the tambourine every, uh, for, for rights and stuff, everybody's, you know, taking, 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 taking. But now that we're trying to get things for ourselves, we're being called divisive. Right. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, yeah, we're, we're getting called divisive and we're not progressive and, you know. Self-love or me saying I love myself doesn't have to mean that I hate you. It's just I love myself. I right. love people that look like me. Right. But it's like they're telling on themselves because that's how they think. Right. The the and we know this already, right? This is nothing new. The value that is intrin- intrinsically placed on the black life simply does it does not resonate in the same way as it does with any other race. It just doesn't. I mean, look at what just recently happened to the 20-year-old man, Devontae Wright, 
right? I believe that's his name. He pulled over at a traffic stop. He had an expired registration, right? And the air freshener in his back window. Right. Air freshener, right? You, you, anybody can see this video. The cops are rolling up to the car. They already got their, they're ready to draw their weapons over some expired registration, right? And we know the, 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 the um, officer who was a woman, she, you know, claims that she was, she meant to grab her taser and she, she, quote unquote, accidentally shot him. He ends up dying, right? There's, we could break this entire situation down and, and, and talk about all the issues and problems with it. But let's start at the top. Number one, why why do you need to tase? Why do you feel the need to tase a 20-year-old man over an expired registration, right? Dylan Roof, I I, I go back to this Dylan Roof example all yeah. the time, right? This this, this white boy walks into a, 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 a black church, sits through Bible study, right? You have this, this is a special type of evil in the world. For you to sit in a black church's Bible study and not walk out feeling touched. Not only do you not walk out feeling touched and closer to heaven, you decide to get your gun and kill everybody up in there. Yeah. And 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 what happens when he leaves? Not only do they arrest him alive, completely unharmed, the brother gets Burger King. Got him a Whopper. A Whopper pie with some cheese. <laughs> extra fries, you know what I'm saying? Maybe and a milkshake. A random, and a random onion ring at the bottom of the bag. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. 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 But yet we have this 20-year-old black black man, Devontae Wright. He he didn't get to make it home because of an expired registration. Mm. And so there's there's all kinds of examples that completely illustrate the point of we walk into these situations knowing that our lives do not carry the same value to all these other folks that it should. And so when we're beating our chests, looking to fight for that, that level of equality, it makes sense that we're met with so much hate, vitriol, and claims of us being divisive because historically it's never been the same. Yeah. If 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 you and you can make you can use any example. If your entire life you're told that that two not that's a bad example. If you're if you're just if you're told your entire life that two things are not the same and they're not equal and they never have been and whether you're you're told it uh, consciously or sub subconsciously they never should be. Yeah. And all of a sudden somebody wakes up some, one day and says no 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 no. no. They need to be the exact same. Let's take two colors, right? Red and blue. You're told your entire life that blue is better than red, period. The Democrat, Republican. Right. <laughs> For whatever the reasons are, blue is better than red. For Let's say you're, you're 50 now. 48 years, that's what you're told. All of a sudden, you're 49, you wake up. Somebody walks in the room and says, hey, they're supposed to be viewed the same. What do you think is going to happen? You think somebody's going to say, oh, yeah, not for sure. That makes sense. Or are they going to fight it? be combative about it and, and in no shape, way shape or form be open to the actual idea that they they could and should be the same it's not going to happen never so i want to digress just a little bit because i think we got a, a little heavy there um <laughs> so you and i have had you're highly critical of the political realm overall and i'm i i would say that i'm less critical than you are, um, but particularly when it comes to 
Obama. We share very different sentiments about his eight years in office. So walk walk me in the audience through kind of how you viewed his terms as president and what are some of the things that you saw that either you didn't agree with or you felt like should have been done differently? Okay. Um, Barack Hussein Obama was put in the bully pulpit, the most powerful seat in the land. And um, he's half Kenyan and his, his mother is white, right? But he's raised in Hawaii by his grandparents. Yep. Crazy. Um, my beliefs, because, uh, you know, nobody's all bad and nobody's all good. I'll, I'll start with the honey before I get to the shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, man. He was handed a terrible hand. Another HBCU classic. <laughs> he sat down at the space table and they just gave him threes. <laughs> they gave him Uno cards <laughs> to start his uh, <laughs> to start his presidency. Uh, George Bush left the world bankrupt because he deregulated Wall Street, Wall Street and uh, let all the hedge funds do what they did to the um, mortgage rates and and and. <laughs> and options and uh, effectively let them bankrupt the world and then George Bush clapped his hands like here you go. Right, I'm going to Texas to chill. <laughs> yes, I'm going to Texas fix this darky. <laughs> so, um, Obama had the wherewithal to pull us out of that in two years. Basically. And he did a phenomenal job with the cards. Now, it wasn't perfect. Like um, one example, like his job creation, um, which the numbers look astronomical, but it's a gig economy where before the recession, I was middle management at a Fortune 500 company. My new employment is at Amazon or I'm an Uber driver because a lot of his legislation opened the door to uh, gigs like that, DoorDash, Uber Eats, um, which all of you companies are welcome to sponsor this podcast. <laughs> hey, um, I'm not mad at that one bit. <laughs> send us some Chipotle. <laughs> something. Um, he opened the gig economy in which people are employed, but they're underemployed. He, but he did the best with the Uno cards and the Spades game that he had, that he had to do. And I'll give a personal story. Him cracking the whip on insurance companies as far as because under Bush like if you had pre-existing conditions like you couldn't get insurance because the insurance companies weren't going to make money on you it was like you're sick so you're going to use the insurance so right. we're not going to sell it to you <laughs> right you mean you're going to use this nah we can't do that step on so, under Obama um, during his presidency my grandmother had an aneurysm and two strokes and because of his legislation um and him cracking the whip on the insurance company, she was able to get her surgeries paid for and grants filed to cover over a million dollars in hospital fees. Now, why in the hospital an aspirin is $95? It's $1,000 a night with no room service, um, no cable. Um, <laughs> right. You know, it's beyond me. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's beyond me. Ha ha Davis um, voice. <laughs> yes. How that happens is um, Yeah, that's that's a whole other subject for another day in terms of the medical industry because it's abysmal. Yeah, the world may never know, but I'll speed up. (laughs) My opposition to Obama was that uh, people didn't realize that Obama was a centrist. He wasn't really a Democrat. Like him and Joe Biden are centrists. They stand in the center of the aisle. (laughs) They're not totally liberal because if you go back and listen to Obama's uh, speeches on immigration, he sounds like the conservatives now, in which I kind of agree, but we can't get into that. <laughs> I don't, this, I, I, my disagreements was like how he didn't condemn um, the police unions, but, you know, when black people were protesting and everything against us being victimized, we're thugs. Called us thugs. On national uh, on national television, but you said nothing when we're getting murdered in the streets. Yeah, you go to Flint. You go to Flint, and people are are getting lead poisoned because of the infrastructure and the pipes and the water. And then you have the audacity to stand in Flint on the podium and ask for a glass of water and drink it. <laughs> like, oh, it's not a problem here, and it's. I'm 10 years later, and these people still have nuclear water. The children still have irreversible cognitive and neurological problems. And all, from what I understand, and I'm not a, a civil engineer, it's just a whole bunch of suits and government arguing about putting the money on the table, because apparently to fix, yeah. fix the problem, it only costs $60 million. Yeah. I mean, we're we're celebrating the we're celebrating Elon Musk. We're celebrating Jeff Bezos um, on the path to becoming trillionaires, and our economy is suffering. Uh, is is showing the biggest wealth consolidation in a thousand years. I Meaning, it's like a mushroom. It's like there's no middle class. It's either your name is Jeff, your name is Elon, your name is Bill Gates, or you're going to be saying right. welcome to Target in the fields yeah. and making it work in tech. <laughs> you know? And for middle America and the flyover states, right. the coal jobs yeah. aren't and coming I, back. And I think all that is very valid, right? I certainly don't think anybody, any individual is above criticism. I think, I think what should come with that right. criticism is context, right? So I like how you threw that honey out there before you... you put it in 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 complete shit (laughs) like you said but i think you know when so this is this is something that that will irritate me right people will start criticizing and condemning the things that obama did during his term without taking into account two things number one present day is not when when was this first term 2008 it started right that was his first term so that's that's 13 years ago so where we are in terms of our beliefs, our understanding of policy, liberal centrist, how they're defined, that shifts as time goes on. And so something that is considered yeah. a, 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 a more liberal idea now would not necessarily have been received in that light 13 years ago, right? This notion that, well, he was too centrist. And I completely agree that he was, not that he was too centrist, he was a centrist, right? 
his philosophy, and I'm going to read his book yeah. because I'm sure he talks about it in there, is I, I need to find a way to appease everybody and get myself in a position to have this influence. And I can't walk in here beating my chest, claiming all things Negro, because when I got to go talk to these senators and representatives, it's a bunch of people that don't look like me. Can I interject right there? Because I want to jump in on that point right there. He would say that, he was like, I'm not just Black people's president. I'm America's president. Which is fine and dandy. If you're not giving specifics or tangible policies and actions to anybody, then we're good. But I'm not Black America's president. I'm everybody's president, so I can't do any things specific for you black people but all right native americans i'm extending your uh, your rights um here's a couple billion dollars to do with what you will um all people in these sovereign native american na- nations are first in line to a lot of federal grants for education land etc yeah. the lgbtqa plus community they got included in the civil rights bills, which yeah. was supposed to be specifically for who, <laughs> for what, where the money resides. Right, and and and, and I completely agree with that sentiment. Right, I I and and I've listened to a lot of his arguments because folks have, especially recently when he's been on these book tours, have called him to the carpet on these things, and his argument has been the policies that I put in place. Yeah that were quote-unquote for everybody helped uplift a significant amount of Black people just through the legislation, which I get. I also push back and say, if, if, if like you said, if I am for everybody, then the, my legislation, all my legislation has to reflect that. Once you start targeting specific groups, at the very least, what you need to do is have a specific target for your own. Especially when, and I, and I understand this because people lose this context too, you have to get things passed through a House of Representatives and the Senate. But when you have both of those, that at the very least, right, let's say you can't get it done. Let's say you got a bunch of, because there's no guarantee that even though you have the power in both houses, that these folks are going to agree to pass anything for Black people, right? Let's just say that hypothetically they don't. At the very least, you could be able to point to a concerted effort and say, hey, this is what I look to do X ten representatives from X places wouldn't pass. You know, they said no, and then that, what that does Say is no. it, it it passes the bug off of you and puts it on them because that's noted in history. These fifty, right? Slam the Uno, <laughs> slam the Uno cards on the table. I don't care if you have five. Right. Yo, Lie please. to us. Just try. You can try. <laughs> Right. Lie, lie to me. Just let me know you're on the other side. It's the officer after you, and they're like, no, you can't do that, Barry. You know, because they like calling him Barry. Um, you notice they never called uh, President Obama like the commander-in-chief. They would just say Obama, but George Bush is a goofy-ass walker. The commander-in-chief is taking even they got sick. Of, yeah, it, well, that used to piss me off. Like, and there's respect I, I, there's office. all kinds of, of quotes and literature that that arose, right? Where these essentially a lot of these white folks who were used to being the quote unquote smartest, most accomplished, 
individuals running through the White House, all of a sudden you have this Negro come in who's smarter than you, who's 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 more savvy than you, right? right. Who can dance, who can run circles around you. I imagine a lot of white folks, particularly a lot of white men, not warming up to that in any way, shape, or form. The first, you could make an argument that the first lady was uh, absolutely might have been absolutely. the smartest person in the White House. She carried a level of pedigree we just <laughs> had not seen in that office for that for that role. And of course, any any opportunity folks had, they tried to diminish her too. But you know, that's the same story. That ain't that ain't, that ain't nothing new. I'm like when they started talking about. Uh... Uh, Michelle Obama calling her an ape and just calling her. <laughs> I'm like, have you seen the first ladies that have walked in here? Like Barbara Bush, uh, Nancy Reagan. These women look like the Crypt Keeper, but you know, Michelle. Michelle is in a beer wearing gown, hair Flourish. that silk press glowing, flush just. Blowing in the wind, graceful as ever, you know. And they saying that she, yeah. she's something wrong. Yeah. With her. Well, well, I, you know, I think wrong with again, kind of like we've conversed about. For me, I don't. I am perfectly open. I'm perfectly fine and am open to. That's a better way to say it. Um, people looking at his two terms and saying these things could have been done better. I'm fine with that, as long as we're willing to note the things he accomplished, where we were as a country at the time, and some of the things that he did to move us in a, in a, in a, a forward direction, right? Even just the prestige of being able to say and see there is a Black man holding the most powerful position in the free world, right? For generations that come, seeing that achievement lets little black boys and girls know what's possible, right? When I was a kid, if somebody asked me if I would have ever seen a black president, I don't think I would have ever said yes definitively. I mean, you could have you could have possibly gotten a maybe out of me or who knows, but a definitive, oh yeah, absolutely. No, it wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have happened. So I, I want to transition no. to our last topic. We, we actually kind of wove this in earlier in the conversation, right? The impact and the and the power of the Black family, right? And the dissension that has taken place in that stronghold since the 60s. So walk me through um, how you view that and why it's such an important facet for our community. <laughs> well, let me hop back into DeLorean. <laughs> Back in 1965, um, you know, this the FBI, <laughs> the head of the FBI, Hoover, literally said in memos, when he, the black family is the biggest threat to America. How did he come to this conclusion? He was wondering how these civil rights leaders or how he called the black messiahs kept rising and how were they able to move about? How were they able to go city to city and preach their message and, um, and, and unite and galvanize um, the average um, 
black person. How were they able to accomplish this? The black the black family was the battery. You had you had father, mother, children, and a lot of these families were business owners, so they hired themselves. They had their own resources. So when you come to the at that time the center of the black community, the black church, you're funneling resources. For Martin Luther King, hey, you don't have to work. We need you to do the work for all of us. So once the collection plate goes around a couple couple times, you know, Martin Luther King has a couple thousand dollars, which is a lot of money right. back back then. You could do a lot. Milk was ten cents. Your frame of reference. You know, uh um, and then you had secretly we learned later that Harry Belafonte, Bill Cosby, other stars, uh, Dick Gregory, funneling money to these leaders, financing their um, their campaigns. But the power base that the, uh, the, be more concise, the power base the FBI found out was the black family. Um, and the plan was to effectively destroy, destroy the, the battery. Because if you take the battery out of the, uh, the family out of the community, um, they have no power base. They have no economic base. So that's why from 65 on, you see the, de the deindustrialization of the inner city. Most of the men worked in factories in the inner city, the auto plants, the, um, the docks. But you see those jobs leaving the cities, and then you see white flight. So a lot of men were out, a lot of skilled labor was out of work and left to their own design. And at the, at the same time, because, you know, they always, you know, they always <laughs> come at us with a hydra attack. It's never one enemy. They send everything at them. Uh, they take, they remove the jobs. And at the same time, they come in our neighborhoods, Linda B. Johnson, and tell our, um, tell our women, like, hey, if you get your man out of the house, you know, we got this public housing and food stamps. So your kids, you know, won't be out in the streets. Yeah. Big Daddy government will take care of you. Just make sure Mr. Johnson isn't in the, in the picture no more. We got you with a check, a house. We're just going to have you move into this high-rise building. We're going to call the projects and closely um, study you. And we're going to put a, we're going to sign what we call a social worker. To help you uh, assimilate into this new environment, this new urban sprawl. So you incentivize the women to get rid of their men, and with the men out in the streets, the police and other agencies can collect them. Right. I, I put think them in jail. I think I know one of the m major events in terms of when we look at the dissension of the, the black communal favor that we had in our, in our, our societies, our black societies, our little civilizations was the fact that you take trades out, you take those jobs out, you put them to the suburbs, you tell black folks, you can't move there. Right. There's literally signs yep. that say, you know, the government incentivizing folks to move to the suburbs, right. Cause the cities were getting too crowded you know, zero dollar down payment, you know, no interest home loan for three years, come move here. No Negroes allowed, right? Right. 
Rich, no ne- no Negroes allowed, which means no black folks have access to that. And so in addition to the programs that have folks being in high rising apartments, inserting things like food stamps, you you <laughs> lay the seeds like Hydra <laughs> and eventually they bear fruit. Right. And when that fruit blossoms, here you are. And so, yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I, I, I think when you look at it and the, the slow growth of it and you had an opportunity to study it like you and I did, it's like it's plain as day, right? But when it's right, it when we talk about um, the system, right? Because f- folks always hear black folks say the system. This is exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, Mike, one of the things I appreciate about you, man, is is even though we've had so many conversations about so many different things, I always feel like. I learned something new or my brain is just functioning at a higher capacity. <laughs> when we finished our conversation, that's one of the reasons <laughs> why I wanted to have you on the pod. Um, I definitely appreciate your time in. I appreciate your fellowship, your allyship. And, you know, I look forward to potentially doing this again down the line because one, I don't think we're going to get kicked off the platforms. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> Like like Chappelle, I, I, like I, I think Chappelle said after like his his, <laughs> first, his third episode of season one, like I ain't been kicked off the network yet, so <laughs> let's keep going. But in all seriousness, I do appreciate you taking the time out to to uh, you know speak with me, speak to the audience, and I look forward to what you're doing next. I look forward to continuing these conversations, and you know I can't wait till you know we're vaccinated and we can we can celebrate life like we used to. Yeah, I'm getting my. Get, I got my. I got my Pfizer. A couple of weeks ago, I'm due the 28th to get my um, second shot, so I'm gonna be bracing for it. Hopefully, I don't, I don't feel too many adverse effects from it. But either way, I'm excited to get it. To be can- yeah, hopefully, I don't get super. I will. Well, thank you, Mike. Thank you, audience, for tuning in. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll you'll see you'll see me again doing another episode real soon. Mike, take care.